Welcome, my brothers and sisters, to the Greater Little Zion Baptist Church. We are delighted that you have joined us this morning for the time of worship and celebration. And it is our prayer indeed that the worship experience by way of music will bless your soul and the preaching of God's word will give you the necessary inspiration and instruction that you need. So sit back, digest, be blessed as the Spirit of God speaks to you today. Amen.
and welcome to the announcements for the weekly online activities here at Greater Little Zion for the week of August 8th. You're invited to join us for our adult Sunday school each Sunday at 8.30 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. Prayer meeting is held each Wednesday at 6 p.m., followed by Bible study with Reverend Dr. Murphy at 7.30 p.m. Youth and Young Adult Sunday School is held each Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Don't forget to register for the Virtual Women's Bible Study that will be held this Saturday, August 14th, from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Send your RSVP to admin at glzbc.org and you will receive the Zoom link to join this session. What a way to close out the weekend on the third Saturday of each month, studying scripture and finding practical application for our daily lives. The Missionary Ministry is sponsoring a school supply drive in conjunction with the drive-through food distribution on Saturday, August 21st from 10 a.m. to 12 noon here at the church. The ministry will be purchasing backpacks and they are asking for donations of supplies to fill them. Your donations can be dropped at the church on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Please see the church's website for a list of the school supplies needed and the times for the drop-offs. Backpacks and supplies can also be picked up on Thursday, August 19th from 5 to 7 p.m. As a reminder, all food and school supplies will be distributed on a first-come, first-served basis while supplies last, and COVID guidelines will be strictly adhered to for the safety of our volunteers and community. For additional church information, please visit the website at www.glzbc.org. Thank you and have a blessed week. Oh!
had within it. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 42, and we're going to read verses 17 through 28. Book of Genesis chapter 42, verses 17 through 28. We're continuing our sermon as we begin on last Sunday. This is part two of the title, The Shaking of a Guilty Conscience. The Shaking of a Guilty Conscience, part two. Genesis chapter 42, beginning at verse 17, reading from the New Living Translation. So Joseph put them all in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I am a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. This will prove that you are telling the truth and you will not die. To this they agreed. Speaking among themselves, the brothers, they said, certainly and clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked, but you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sack with grain, but he also gave secretly instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey, so the brothers loaded their donkeys with their grain and headed home. But when they stopped for the night and one of them opened his sack to get grain for his donkey, he found his money in the top of his sack. Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack. Then their hearts sank. Trembling, they said to one another, what has God done to us? Again, the shaking of a guilty conscience, part two. In his classic writing, Zig Ziglar, he has entitled one of his books, See You at the Top. There is a pointed, significant cartoon display in the first chapter depicting an elevator to the left that indicates that the floors that this elevator covers is from the basic, from the basement to the sixth floor. But then any attempt to board that elevator, one would notice, is blocked by a big prohibiting sign saying, out of order, you have to use the stairs. Then to the right of the elevator, 
is a picture of a man standing there with his briefcase in hand, staring up the long flight of stairs, observing that at the end of the stairs, there's a door that has written above its entrance, tomorrow, health, wealth, happiness, friends, growth, peace, security, leisure, freedom, and opportunity. But between where he is standing and that door at the top of the stairs, each stairs is labeled and marked with the indicators suggesting what one must consider in order to arrive at the top of the stairs. Self-image, relationship with others, goals, attitude, work, and desire. These stairs seem to have been climbed as we read the story of Joseph by him, and they still are a viable requirement for you and I to get to the top. To the left of those stairs, there's attached on the wall a handrail whereby the climber can hold and use as assistance to climb with these words character, faith, integrity, loyalty, honesty, and love. But underneath, underneath this cartoon image is the utmost question entertained by the man, obviously, but likewise by you and I, if we consider climbing those stairs. And the statement is, question, will you stare up the stairs or will you step up the stairs? This contemporary cartoon image connects me to the similar questions and considerations by Joseph, I believe, in order to get to the top from the pit to the palace because the elevator of ease for Joseph was out of order. In essence, it took Joseph 13 years to climb those stairs, but he did it. He did it with a history of betrayal and a history of hatred and a history of intentional death in his background. And yet, occupied in a compartment of his conscience, was this idea to persevere in spite of the threat. Now he has climbed those stairs and achieved all that tomorrow has to give. He's achieved the health, he's achieved the wealth and the happiness, the friends and the growth. He's achieved the peace, the security, the leisure and the freedom, and most importantly, opportunity. It's opportunity, choice, that's what opportunity is, choice, that determines two things about Joseph. How Joseph will remain at the top, now that he's on top, how does he stay there? And also, Joseph must determine and choose whether to help redeem people where he is, i.e. the use of his power. 
His opportunity is going to be his brothers, the very ones who made the beginning of his journey miserable. But Joseph says something critical to his brothers. Remember this. He says in verse 18, I am a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live as the brothers are before him, attempting to buy grain. I believe Joseph also is saying this from experience to his brothers. This is a point that I want you to catch this morning. The instructions that you follow determine the future that you create. I'll say it again. The instructions that you follow determine the future that you create. Remember what Joseph says to his brothers. I am a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. In essence, Joseph is saying, I'm saying to you that by following the instruction that God gave me, I ended up creating the future that I'm at right now. But in his ascension, he knew that one day, as we said before, he would meet these brothers again if death had not somehow intervened. It was a promise and a crisis that brought Joseph and his brothers back together again. That promise was that Jacob, Israel, would be a blessing to all the earth, but not until they persevered through this famine that they're in. It's interesting how it takes a crisis to bring a family, to bring a marriage, to even bring personal life, to bring a church family back together again. It's amazing how sometimes it takes a death, a tragic accident, a misfortune, a failure in life to bring us full circle and to navigate us to the posture of repentance, first to God and then to one another. But this is where Joseph now stands in this 42nd chapter. His actions so far appear, appear to have done just what I believe he wanted. The shaking of the guilty conscience of his brothers. It begins with a famine, a crisis that causes them to come to Egypt to purchase what they needed to live, grain. Joseph has climbed those stairs and remained true. Is the reason why he's still there to integrity, to character, and love, so much so that God has made his countenance unrecognizable. Joseph was the forerunner of what Aaron would later declare as a benediction about what God will do for Israel and what he will do for us when we follow those instructions. Remember those words by Aaron? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Here it is. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you peace. Number 6, 24 through 26. That's exactly what God did to Joseph's life 
so much so that the Bible says his brothers could not recognize him. Now, we can make a case that it had been a long time since they had seen Joseph. The last they saw of Joseph, he was simply a 17-year-old, and now he's nearly 40. You also have to consider that on their way to Egypt to purchase grain, you have to wonder if they considered the thought, would we see Joseph on the road working as a slave? And certainly, they would have never considered looking for him in the place of royalty. But there he was. The opportunity to harm by Joseph or to help his brothers whom he had charged as spies in the land. He knew these brothers were his siblings. He was merely interrogating their conscience, interrogating them about spying. And then he incarcerated them, says the text, for three days, which caused their conscience to begin to contemplate the past while watching their brother Simeon being held as hostage until they come back with Benjamin. Chapter 42, verses 17 through 20. That's the gist of what we get there. But herein lies the divine intent of Joseph's maneuvering. Notice what we have in this narrative so far. If we go back to chapter 41, verse 53-57, we have this predicted famine that we now find Egypt within. Chapter 2, verse, chapter 42, verse 1 through 5, we have this perplexed family who's struggling, says Jacob, watching his sons look at one another instead of considering going to Egypt to buy grain that they might live. But then in chapter 42, in verse 6 through 34, we have this tremendous pointing of finger by God on these brothers. The pointing finger of God kept pointing at the consciousness of these men. And at the same time, working on the conscience of Joseph. Brothers probably were not aware that they were operating out of both an acknowledgement, but as well as perhaps something they did not even know. For example, out of simple ignorance. 42, chapter 42, clause A says that they didn't recognize Joseph. And yet, verse 13 says that they worked out of a subtle implication. Verse 13 says that they said, we are from one man. We have our younger brother who is back at home with our father. Then that closing line, it says that we have another who is no longer with us, implying that something has happened to that younger brother. But then there's this self-incrimination in verse 21 through 23. It says clearly that after listening to Joseph, 
Listen to what 21 says. Speaking among themselves, they said clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. You go all the way down to verse 23. It closes particularly in that last line by saying, uh, as they look at him, listen to what it says. And Joseph understood what they had said, but what caught his spirit was what they closed in verse 22. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, says Reuben, but you wouldn't listen. Now we have to answer for his blood. I like what the new American Standard Version says, now we are in this moment of reckoning. And that's what the self-incrimination does to the brothers. It leads to a moment of reckoning. Again, reckoning of the blood. Understand that confession can never be done with honesty until there is recognition that I am guilty. Which is why we don't experience forgiveness too often in the church context. Everybody wants to be right. Everyone wants their point made. We generally want to point the finger at someone else. And few of us are willing to say, I'm guilty, I'm sorry, so we can move on to maturity. Although the Bible does not widely develop any theories about conscience, it does imply that this ability that we have is an integral part of our human personality and that violations of the conscience cause major injuries to the innermost of a person. Take, for example, Matthew 27 that tells us about Judas Iscariot. In the Greco-Roman society, the word conscience seems to focus on the capacity of a person or the power of a person, particularly when they're looking back to the occurrences of the past to assess or to evaluate whether those occurrences were good or whether they were bad. And in conducting that evaluation, there's a Greek word there that the Greeks use for conscience that simply means that the conscience has tied to it a moral character. So when someone reevaluates his or her actions, they are affected personally by the assessment of whether the past actions were good or were bad. Good actions usually bring about peace within oneself while evil actions made the, first, made the person feel very hurt, anxious, and even depressed. They were dealing, these brothers, with the reckoning action, the punishing of their past mistakes or misdeeds. We see in Matthew 27, particularly verse 1 through 5, when the text says, in the morning, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away 
and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, I hope you remember that Jesus had been prosecuted unfairly before the Jewish courts. And now he's going to be sent over to the Roman courts because the Jews had no right nor power to give or pass judgment by way of capital punishment on anyone. They couldn't execute anybody, so they were under a state rule by Rome. So they had to send Jesus to Pilate for further action. And Matthew 27, 3 says, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. But don't forget this phrase. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I sinned by betraying innocent blood. We only hear pretty much about the betrayal of Jesus, I mean of Judas, against Jesus. But we rarely hear about this third verse in reference to Judas because at least it depicts for us we have to consider Jesus, Jesus, Judas experienced what the Greeks called metanoia, the turning around, the changing of his mind, translated repentance. And he brought back that silver, hoping it could help clear his conscience. But the chief priest and the elder said to Judas, what is this to us? Nothing. See to it yourself. Translation, that's your issue, not ours. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out, says the Bible, and hanged himself. What happened to Judas? Guilt overwhelmed him. Guilt overwhelmed Judas, who maybe thought that forgiveness was not possible for him, or who felt that he had gone to a place of no return after feeling or being tormented by guilt. See, I'm going to step out and say something radical that you've probably never heard, and that is, I'm not convinced that when you get to heaven, you'll not see Judas. Because this text says, Matthew 27, that Judas had a change of mind. But what Judas couldn't handle was the overwhelming guilt that he experienced as a result of what he had done. The torment had wrenched all of the life out of Judas' expectation. Now, what is guilt? In layman's term, guilt is that emotional pain. It's that agony when you realize you've done wrong. It's an emotional feeling. It's a feeling of agony, of pain within when we realize that we have sinned and we have committed a crime or a violation against one another, against God. Guilt is something we all probably deal with at some point in time. We wrestle with it. And whether we want to admit it or not, the objective feel of guilt simply says that you are guilty before God. That's what Romans 3.23 says. For all have sinned and fallen short 
comes short of the glory of God. So whether you admit it or not, or feel it or not, when you create an offense against God, and when you create an offense against one another and fail to recognize it, you're still guilty. Still guilty before God. That's the objective of guilt. But then guilt also has a subjective feel. And the subjective feel says, I realize I've done wrong. That's what happened to Judas. He realized that he had shed innocent blood and he done wrong. He felt the agony. He realized his wrong. He was reeling in the pain from the turmoil within. And the Bible says, once again, Judas changed his mind. Now, in the English translation, the chaining of his mind, again, is a derivative from the Greek word metanoia or meta, metamolamia, which just simply means he regretted. He felt sorry. He felt remorse. So to read that Jews felt regret, felt remorse, feeling sorry about what he had done, then you might ask why why would he feel sorry? Why do you feel sorry? Why do you feel guilty about the things that you've done wrong? Simply because God is saying, built in every human being is this system, this alarm system called conscience. And when we sin, we go against God's law that originally was written in our hearts, that alarm goes off. It rains. We know it. We try to ignore it, but we know it. We hear it. We feel it. It's a deafening sound sometimes, and it's also quite painful. That's what the conscience is there for. It's to accuse us as well as excuse us. It's to tell you whether you've sinned, is to tell you whether you have not sinned. That's what happened to both Judas and the brothers of Joseph. That's the meaning of chapter 42 of Genesis verse 21 and 22. That's the meaning of those words. Particularly that line when it says, now comes the reckoning for his blood. We are now going to have to give an account, said these brothers, of what we did to Joseph. Isn't it interesting how they equated Joseph's experience with the challenge they now have before the prime minister to get granted because they've been charged as spies. They equated their circumstance to what they had done to their brother, Joseph. Guilt. That's all it was, guilt. But what they didn't know what they didn't know was that their reckoning moment was being handled by a moment of restoration. That's what verse 23 and 24 tell us. It's a moment of restoration. Listen to the text again. 
Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. They had a reckoning moment in listening to this judgment by Joseph. By Joseph, but now they got this restorative moment. This moment of restoration in which Joseph is now going to do something tremendous that they never considered. Judas missed it. Joseph's brothers will eventualize it. You and I can experience it right now. You see, restoration is what we hear in David's cry of Psalm 51, verse 2 through 4. Because of the guilt and the wanting of peace and restoration in his life, David wrote, wash me from my guilt and cleanse me of my sin. For I recognize my rebellion because it haunts me day and night. That's the New Living Translation. But the old King James says, my sin is ever before me. In other words, David is saying, no matter where I run, how I try to get away from it, my guilt won't let me escape your conviction in my conscience. And that's what it's there for, church, to remind us that when we violate one another, when we violate the word of God, Keep in mind, when we violate one another, we violate God because each of us are in the image of God. That's what Paul advocates in the Colossian letter. We are the image of who God is through the person of Christ and so harming one another harms God. And David said, my conscience won't let me leave the fact that I've done wrong. That I did purposely set up Uriah that I might gain Bathsheba. Judas says, I've done wrong. I purposely betrayed him that I might gain 30 pieces of sin. The brother says, Joseph's brothers, we've done wrong. When he cried out to us, we wouldn't listen to him. We wouldn't hear him. Reuben says, I told you not to hurt that brother. I told you this is going to come back and haunt us. Because that's what guilty conscience does. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he is shaking our conscience. David says, my sins are before me. And he says against you. And you, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Notice, David never recognizes by way of repentance, or I'm sorry, to Uriah, of course he's deceased, nor Bathsheba. But he equates it to violating God. And I want us to get that today because that's what this piece of the story is about. Feeling the power of the Holy Spirit who convicts our conscience when we have wronged someone else. Notice 
this incident occurred for the brothers, Joseph's brothers, 13 years ago. If not longer, it's even longer than that. It occurred years ago, and yet it's still fresh in their conscience. That's what unrepentance will do for you. And David continues by saying in a plea, wash me, God. Please wash me and please cleanse me. See, one is present, one is past tense. Wash me now. Fix me up now. But cleanse me ongoing every day. Help me get myself together. Take this thing away from me. Why? Because sin has made me lose he says in verse 8 of Psalm 51, Oh, give me back my joy again, which means that this is not the first time that David has had this kind of guilt experience. Oh, King James Version says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's saying, I'm really, really, really suffering, Lord. In fact, it's almost like daily. My bones are being fractured over and over again. That's the emotional pain and the agony David experienced. So look at what Joseph does to mediate restoration for his brothers. Something interesting in the text. It says, beginning in verse 23, it says, of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them. 24, now he turned away from them began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. He chose Simeon from among them, had him tied up. But then in verse 25, Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain, but he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home. So the brothers loaded their donkey, with grain and headed for home. It'd have to do that. But that's what restoration, that's what grace does. If you rewind back to what I said earlier in the text, that's what opportunity does for Joseph. It informs him that now is the time for you to step beyond the norm. Normal would have been, don't give them anything, just make them go back, figure out the best way they can. But he gives them their money back that they purchased for the grain. He gives them food that they need for the journey, all the supplies that they need for the journey, shall I say. Didn't have to do it. But when you've been blessed, see, remember the name of his two sons, Manasseh, God has made me forget all of the pain and agony in the house of my father, his son Ephraim. God has blessed me and made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. All of that plays into Joseph's consciousness and he decides it's more blessed to give. And that's what he does. He gives to the brothers, making a way for them. He actually reverses what one considers to be bad guilt from the brothers and he administers good guilt, healthy guilt, grace guilt, 
Because without that, there could be no forgiveness, there could be no repentance, there could be no restoration. So what are the lessons learned in this text as I close that I want us to get today? Number one, when you forgive, you heal. When you let go, you grow. When you forgive, you heal yourself and arguably in time and maybe in the immediate unbeknown to you you heal the offender but when you let it go you grow because the longer you harbor the anger of what they've done to you the more it causes hesitation stagnation in your journey secondly forgiving doesn't mean forgiving it means choosing to remember love instead. It's a connection to the words of that hymn. He looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. That's what you got to think about sometimes. When you talk about in the sense of when I forgive a person, how do I do that? without harboring, harboring anger. Number three, anger only makes you smaller because what it does, it brings out the most aggressive behavior that you can internalize. Anger makes you smaller while forgiveness forces you to grow up beyond where you were beyond what you are. That's what it does. Anger makes me small, but forgiveness forces me to grow up from where I was and what I was. That's what it does. And that's the power of that transformation of what can happen when we permit the Spirit of God to do those great, wonderful, magnificent things in our lives. And then finally, the late Cora Tim Boom says this, there are four marks of true repentance acknowledges. True repentance says there's an acknowledgement of wrong, there's a willingness to confess it, there's a willingness to abandon it, and then there's a willingness to make restitution. Joseph's brothers is in an interesting state, as we shall find out in the weeks to come. Because they're going to have to deal with all of this grace and mercy that they're getting. And when you can love a person beyond their pain and their difficulty and their hurting of you, it's tough for them sometimes to embrace. Why well, would you do that? when I'm offended you. That's what love does. Love looks beyond the Father. Our Father, thank you for the word today and thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this story and the book of Genesis. Thank you for the life of Joseph and his brothers. And I pray today that someone grasp the meaning of this lesson. That Perhaps they're in a place in their life where they are angry with someone because they've been hurt. Or someone's angry with them because they have hurt them. 
Maybe today, Lord, this could be the beginning of a new day for them as they march forward in the newness of life, trusting your spirit to transform their life. I pray, God, today that if there's someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, it's always my hope that they've come to know you today in a real personal way. I pray, Lord, that this church, in speaking of the gospel, as we open our doors, Someone would consider this a place to have worship and fellowship and they come be a part of this fellowship. We would gladly receive them with open arms and commit them as members of this greater design family. Have your way, Lord, with this word and will forever give you the glory however you decide to use it. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always my privilege and my prayer that when the word of God goes forth, that as you listen to it, God utilizes the word that it might bless your life. And as you go forth from this day, your life will never be the same. I have the privilege of saying to you, thank you so much for tuning in today. And those of you who were kind enough to consistently support our ministry, thank you for doing so. We receive your tithes and offerings with thanksgiving. And at the end of this service, you certainly can see the various manners in which you can give to this ministry, whether it be by text, whether it be by our church website, um, there are other ways in which you can give. We certainly receive your tithes and offerings with thanksgiving. We encourage you to continue to do so. Always remember that God loves you and so do I. Be blessed. And you look forward to a bright, glorious week in Jesus' name.